This program is brought to you by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Colbert Report, The Majority Report, On the Media, Media Matters, The Young Turks, The Daily Show, and The Onion Radio News with a bonus video clip for our Apple iOS and Android app users from The Young Turks. Nation, there are so few things left in the world to believe in. And now there is one thing less, thanks to yesterday's The USA Today. Folks, check out this infographic down here, okay? It says, which is sexier? A man who dresses well, 85%. A man who has a lot of money, 15%. Now immediately, I didn't buy it. I mean, all women are naturally attracted to a man holding a picture of a dollar sign. That's how I go into a bar. And my suspicions were right, folks. Take a look at the source of this poll. A men's warehouse survey of 558 women. Men's warehouse. The infographic has sold out. It is now in the pocket of Big Suit. And not that weird little one for the handkerchief. Folks, I am 87% stunned with a margin of error of plus or minus heartbroken. I mean, what other multicolored propaganda have you been feeding us, the USA Today? Is the most common candy-based street name in America really peppermint? Or did you take a kickback from the people at York? And don't apologize to me, you apologize to those poor people on Licorice Avenue. I don't know what's real anymore. I guess if I, if I want unbiased reporting, I'll have to go back to getting my news from Snapple Caps. <laughs> this just in, President William McKinley had a pet parrot that he named Washington Post. <laughs> mm. It's like Diet Kiwi Walter Cronkite. I know, she knows that I'm not fond of asking. True or false it may be Or she's still out to get me And I know, she knows That I'm not fond of asking True or false it may be Speaking of morons, <laughs> now, is he in prison right now, uh, Stevens? No, right? His prosecution was thrown out because uh, the Bush administration, the uh, U.S. Justice Department. Right? Was that what happened? You're talking about Stevens? Yeah. Uh, Senator Stevens. He's dead, former. isn't he? Oh, did he die? Didn't he die in the plane crash? Oh, gosh. Sorry about that. <laughs> but his, um, his quotes still live on. Let's play this. I, I just the other day got internet was sent by my staff at 10 o'clock in the morning on Friday. I got it yesterday. Why? Because he got tangled up with all of these things that are going on the internet commercially. And, and here we have this one situation where enormous entities want to use the internet for their purpose to save money for do, doing what they're doing now. They use FedEx. They use the, the delivery services. They, they use the mail. 
They, 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 they deliver it in other ways, but they want to deliver vast amounts of information over the Internet. And again, the Internet is not something that you just dump something on. It's not a big truck. It's, it's a series of tubes. <laughs> and if you don't understand, those tubes can be filled. And if they're filled, when you put your message in, it gets in line. It's going to be delayed by anyone that puts into that tube enormous amounts of material. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't flying the plane. <laughs> That's not right for me to say. Look, I don't wish any physical harm on, well, on him. Um, there may be some other people I want to reserve judgment for. But um, his, uh, his tubes have come home to roost, as it were. <laughs> Comcast has uh, threatened a Netflix uh, provider, I guess. Essentially, um, Netflix is a service, and then it has a content delivery provider. And apparently it's uh, called Level 3. I think that's the equivalent of, like, uh, back in the day at Air America, we had sometimes we had Voxel doing certain things. Um I think that's the equivalent. Essentially, it's a, it's a it's a content provider, and Comcast is has demanded a reoccurring fee from uh, this level three. Now, it is true that uh, Netflix uses an incredible amount of bandwidth across the uh, the globe, and so one might think, well, okay, then why shouldn't they pay for more? Although it's not exactly like a pipe, ladies and gentlemen. There is actually expansive qualities, and there's certainly an infrastructure to handle more traffic, uh, and it could be easily expanded. And it's not a such a finite co commodity, this bandwidth. But more importantly, understand why Comcast is doing this. They're not paying any more money. Comcast, it's not costing Comcast anything else, as far as I can tell. What they're doing is they're trying to set the table because Comcast is going to own NBC soon. And they're going to want to do their own delivery. They're going to want to compete with Netflix. In fact, I think they already do. They have something called Xfinity which is a really bad name, but I guess they wanted to put that X in there to be reminiscent of Netflix. Maybe? I don't know. Is anybody a branding expert out there? Dorsey? Not an expert, but sounds pretty good to me. Right. <laughs> um, Evan, are you a branding expert? Yes. Right. And... Uh, so Comcast is promoting its vision of a combined television and Internet on-demand uh, service and would love to be able to say, hey, we're going to cut into the profit or the budget of Netflix. I think Netflix just actually moved to a different pricing structure where you charge a little bit more for the DVDs and less for the online delivery. I think it's like only seven bucks now if you want exclusively online. And of course, Comcast is like, oh, we can't have this. That's the price of two of our on demand movies. But you could watch hundreds. 
And this is a vision of what uh, the net neutrality fight is about. Because, you know, it'll start with this. But then it'll go to things like, hey, Comcast has just bought the New York Times. Hmm. Huffington Post, you sure have a lot of traffic. We may have to charge you a little bit extra. Well, Comcast has just bought, um, uh, you know, uh, Catherine Harris and the douche, the morning show or something. Morning Zoo with Catherine Harris and the douche. And uh, competes against Sam Cedar's streaming show. Sam, hey, sorry. We're going to have to charge you an extra fee, which you're going to have to pass on to your members. It's something unattainable that you can't live without. Anyone thrilled at the wide-open freedom of the Internet, the inevitable question is, how long can it last? Tim Wu, a professor at Columbia University Law School, looks to history for the answer, and the answer is, not very long, unless we actively intervene. He sees a cycle in the evolution of all the other great information technologies of the last 150 years, the telegraph, the movies, radio. They start out wild and woolly until they are tamed and caged by men who would be emperors. Their empires, monopolies like AT&T and the early TV networks, wielded extraordinary power over the delivery and often the content of the information all of us received. A power described by a CBS executive in the 1950s as, quote, the exclusive custody of the master switch. In his book called The Master Switch, Tim Wu describes the cycle that transforms a technological revolution into a monopoly. Consider the telephone. What started as a promising but buggy invention by Alexander Graham Bell turned into a juggernaut in the hands of empire builder Theodore Vail. When Vail came to AT&T in 1907, it was a company that had less than half of the market share for telephones. There were hundreds, maybe thousands of competitors. It was a vibrant, open market. And what Vail did was to unify it all into a single consolidated monopoly. Now, as we pursue this cycle, AT&T consolidated its power. It was very efficient in delivering service, but as you note, it only encouraged innovation and invention that bolstered its monopoly, and it crushed those innovations that didn't. There is a repeat pattern we see with America's information monopolists. A new invention is created by a disruptive inventor, and it goes through a period of openness, entrepreneurial activity, a kind of a boom, and eventually, and typically, some great strongman arises who integrates the entire industry into a lasting monopoly. This repeats itself for the radio industry, the early telephone industry, the film industry, and today it may be repeating itself in the Internet industry. So how does the cycle end? Well, once a monopoly is established, it itself is broken up by a new invention, 
so the telegraph empire was destroyed by the telephone, or occasionally the government steps in and breaks it up. The AT&T breakup and the breakup of the Hollywood studios are the two main examples. So then are they left in pieces or are they reassembled? Sometimes someone new can arise and put the pieces back together. AT&T did that in 2006, reassembled itself. Sometimes something new arises and builds a new empire. And you say that American culture in general seems to acknowledge that political power needs to be curbed. But there's a resistance to the notion that economic power needs to be curbed. Yeah, we do have a big, powerful federal government, but we are constantly asking whether it needs to be less powerful, rolled back, what its limits are. In contrast, the American attitude towards private power, while it has its moments, is much more forgiving. Uh, we allow when we have a massive economic crisis like we just had, we say, well, that's just kind of the way it works, instead of doubting our fundamental approach to these things. And you suggest that these times and this new technology calls for something you call the separations principle. We need a sensitivity towards over-consolidation between the people who move information and the people who create it. The, the point is that when you have an over-consolidation of transport and content, you can have an influence over uh, politics. Uh, you can end up with private censorship. You can end up with suppression of new innovation. And I think we need a principle like separation of church and state, where we say, you know, these are nice institutions, but they need to retain some distance. If, for example, Verizon and Google get too close together, if AT&T and Facebook want to become a single company, there are dangers from that. What would the dangers be? What would the dangers be? So Google and AT&T merging would result in a world in which it would be almost impossible to displace Google as a nation's dominant search engine. It could insulate itself against competition, even after it had become antiquated or, or lost its edge. And it could also begin to favor certain companies over others on its search and would have a power over what Americans hear that would be close to unprecedented in American life. Okay, so you suggest that the separations principle requires three active sets of participants. First, the federal government, then the entertainment information and technology companies, right. and then us. Uh, the federal government has to provide some oversight of this, but most important of all, I think it is essential that it is a norm, that we see this as something that is dangerous, that we understand that in history this has produced problems. Because we're used to on the Internet the idea you can reach anything you want. That is the separations principle in action. Over the summer when the news linked that Google and Verizon had done a secret deal, there was a lot of outrage. And I think that that shows that the public is sensitive to these sorts of issues. You are widely regarded as the inventor of the phrase net neutrality. The principle of net neutrality is that an Internet service provider like AT&T can't cut special deals for faster speeds for larger Internet services like Google that are willing to pay more for them. Everybody gets to ride along the information highway at the same speed. This idea doesn't have a lot of support in Congress. Net neutrality is, I would suggest, the governing principle on the Internet today. Net neutrality is first and foremost a norm. And often a norm is more important than a law. It is not irrelevant, what Congress thinks, but it's close to irrelevant. And the reason is that were, for example, AT&T to block Google tomorrow, it would not be tolerated. And so the net neutrality principle and its acceptance in the Internet space is a prototype of a broader separations principle. What's at stake if we don't adopt it? Americans have uh, contradictory impulses in this area. 
On the one hand, we love convenience and reliability, and that's what takes us to these monopolists over history. But our instinct towards convenience is tempered by another instinct which wants choice and freedom. And I'm suggesting that if Americans don't pay attention, it won't be obvious at first, but over time we will see that the content we receive is increasingly winnowed, filtered, chosen for us. And I think that while some of us may like that, that the better half of our tradition believes in access to a freer amount of speech. Don't you think that even if there is somebody controlling the master switch, we'll still have a lot more speech with the advent of the Internet than we ever have had in any era before? It depends on whether we continue to live in a media environment where everyone can be a creator. There is an effort to return to an age where we mostly listen to simply the professionals and we get rid of all the amateurs. You know, it sounds unlikely now. I agree right now we're in an extremely open phase, and I love it, but I'm suggesting that there is a taste also for fewer channels and that we could move back to something like the 1950s or, or 60s where there were very few channels for information. Tim, thank you so much. Thank you. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. There has been a major development in a story I broke on last night's show. As I reported, founder of the Huffington Post, Ariana Huffingpo, recently <laughs> sold her news site to AOL for $315 million. No surprise there. HuffPo is the premier destination for breaking political news and blog updates on the state of John Lovitz's psoriasis. <laughs> Stay strong, John. Now, a lot of HuffPo's content is aggregated from other sites, including my own TV show. And I have yet to receive my percentage of the HuffBucks. <laughs> Which is why last night I announced my new site, The Cole Buffington Repost. <laughs> which is just the Huffington Post with a new title on it. It takes their repackaged content and re-repackages it as my own. It's like a Russian nesting doll of intellectual theft. <laughs> well, today, ladies and gentlemen, while I was browsing the Cole Buffington repost, I made a troubling discovery. The Huffington Post has posted a story about the Cole Buffington repost. <laughs> which naturally the Cole Buffington repost Buffington reposted. Nation, 
I don't have to spell out the danger here. If you were to click on the link to the Cole Buffington repost, re-repost of the Huffington Post post about the repost, you will rip a hole in the blog time continuum. And we could all get sucked into some kind of bizarro parallel huffing verse where bloggers are paid for their work and John Lovitz has a healthy scalp. Well, folks... I can't let that happen. I've got to stop this before it's too late. So, Drudge Report, you must post a story warning people not to click on the Cole Buffington's repost repost so that the Huffington Post can repost your post on their website, canceling out everything and returning order to the universe. It will work, or my name isn't Ariana. Oh, my God! <laughs> This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Danny Herrera. It's an incredible day, ladies and gentlemen. Glenn Beck has actually used the memory of Martin Luther King Jr. to promote his own book. Take a listen. Martin Luther King did a lot of work. It was a lot of personal work. Remember, his pledge was, you are going to do these things in your life. If you marched with Martin Luther King, you just didn't go out and march. It's not like the tea party where you just go out. You had to pledge certain things. I'm, I'm asking you. I'm, you don't have to sign your name to anything. But I'm asking you to contact and say, on Monday, you contact and say, I'm going to change my life. If you want to start today, I want you to read the seven wonders that will change your life. news junkie. That's why every night at 10, I tie off and mainline some uncut coop. I chase the albino dragon. I ride the silver surfer. I drop a tab of AC360. But it's never, never enough news for me. That's why I am thrilled that Rupert Murdoch's News Corp has come out with a new iPad app called The Daily. You just buy the app. And you get all the convenience of using your iPad to read the news online, but without the Internet's annoying habit of being completely free. <laughs> and it is being praised by everybody in the media that is owned by Rupert Murdoch. Well, it is a big day for the news business as the next generation of media was unveiled this morning in New York. New times demand new journalism. The Daily is expected to change the way people get news. A first-of-its-kind application that will bring them news in a whole new way. This is the way that news is going to evolve. The Daily. The Daily. The Daily. A lot of people think that tablet can save newspapers. This could be a game changer. I think this is the end of the laptop. Absolutely. You're confident of that? Yes. Okay. Um, well, it's portable. Yes, the daily is portable, unlike a laptop. <laughs> Evidently, Murdoch has the upper body strength of a cricket. <laughs> now, 
You may not have heard about the daily yet because the day it was launched, every other news network was focusing instead on some little dust-up in Cairo. Well, thankfully, the daily readers will never have to worry about missing out on the truly important news because this week, their editor-in-chief, Jesse Angelo, sent out an internal memo to his editorial staff announcing, folks, Egypt is over. Time for us to get focused on covering America. Yes, Egypt is overdone. Nothing to see. Millions of brown people yearning for freedom after 30 years of oppressive blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Wake me up when they elect President Anubis, jackal-headed god of the underworld. <laughs> now, fortunately, fortunately, the Daily's editor has a nose for the stories that really affect America, which is why he told his staff in the leaked memo, we need to get out there and start finding more compelling stories from around the country. Find me the oldest dog in America or the richest man in South Dakota. And if you really want to call yourself a journalist, you roll up your sleeves, hit the streets and find the richest dog in South Dakota. Oh. I bet he gets all the bitches. <laughs> of course, of course, Rupert Murdoch's enemies on the left to think progress had to go and find the oldest dog in America themselves, tweeting, notes to enterprising daily reporters, America's oldest dog is Uncle Chi-Chi, he lives in the West Village. <laughs> ruining, ruining what should have been the Daily's canine scoop. But don't worry. If News Corp's other paper, the New York Post, is any indication, I'm sure the Daily will soon be synonymous with canine scoop. <laughs> now, as reported, as reported by Think Progress, the oldest dog in America is the 23-year-old Uncle Chi-Chi, who lives right here in Manhattan. Oh, look at you. Look at you. You're so old. You're so old. <laughs> But guess what, Think Progress? You scoop the daily, well, I'm scooping you. Because we at The Rapport have found a 24-year-old dog, and he's right here under my desk. Ladies and gentlemen, please say hello to General Butterbean. There you go. There you go. <laughs> he's adorable. Oh my God, I can't believe he's sleeping through all this noise. Oh God. There you go. Come on, baby. Come on. Come on. There you go. Come on. Oh my God. He's he's, he's he's so tired. Well, there's still the richest man in South Dakota. Can somebody make sure he's still breathing?
Republicans are keeping up their track record of doing absolutely nothing about job creation, what they were ostensibly elected to do, but they're doubling down on another really important problem facing the country, national public radio. The House Rules Committee called an, quote, emergency meeting this afternoon to consider a bill that would cut government funding for NPR. The House will debate the bill tomorrow. And the really sick thing is that the fraud James O'Keefe committed with yet another one of his doctored videos in his so-called expose of NPR created the momentum for this bill. As is routine in these cases, NPR didn't fight back. Instead, they fired their top people. And it was left up to Glenn Beck's website of all places to point out just how out of context O'Keefe's videos really were. One of the reasons why NPR executive Ron Schiller lost his job was because he was caught on tape describing Tea Party members as, quote, xenophobic, seriously racist people. But it turns out, when Schiller said that, he was not giving his own opinion of the Tea Party. He was actually recounting views expressed to him by two Republicans. Now take a look at the uncut version and look at how it starts. I won't break a confidence, but a person who was an ambassador, so a very highly placed Republican, uh, another person who was one of the top donors to the Republican Party, they both told me they voted for Obama, which they never believed they could ever do in their lives, that they could ever vote for a Democrat, ever. And they did because they believe that the current Republican Party is not really the Republican Party that has been hijacked by this group. Now, O'Keefe never explained that Schiller was talking about Republicans he knows saying that. He left the impression that was all Schiller's opinion. That be that's because O'Keefe is not a journalist. He's a political hatchet man. He's part of a Republican machine that in the end produced bills to kill off what they view as their political enemies. There were at least seven instances of questionable editing, including on the important issue of funding. But let me show you one more. O'Keefe edited the video to show Schiller happy and upbeat about the fake organization seeking to spread Sharia law across the world. Pay attention to the way that it was edited. On the MIAC website, it said the organization sought to, quote, spread the acceptance of Sharia across the world. Now, it seems like they're talking about Sharia law. Take a look at the uncut tape. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. You see that? It had nothing to do with Sharia law. They were joking around about the reservation. Look, you got to understand this. It's a free country. O'Keefe can do all the tapes he wants, but the rest of the media should not take it seriously. And certainly, Congress should not take it seriously when they go to defund NPR based on this clownishness. Bounds of reason. Now, my next guest is trying to reason with his colleagues in Congress, imploring them not to defund NPR, especially when the rationale is a deceptively edited video put together by a guy who specializes in those political hit jobs. Congressman Earl Blumenauer of Oregon joins me now. Congressman, what's the current status now? How uh, likely is this to pass the House? 
Well, based on what we saw previously with the continuing resolution, uh, it's very likely. Uh, it's, it's doubtful that the Republican leadership would have rushed this to the floor, violating their own rules for 72 hours notice uh, with an emergency meeting of the Rules Committee, unless they were fairly confident that it would in fact pass. Congressman, do you think this is part of a coordinated campaign? Do you think they, you know, they know that O'Keefe is going to do these videos, O'Keefe knows what their agenda is, and then it gets repeated on places like Fox News, but you got to give credit to Beck's website here, The Blaze, which defunct this. And, and, and let me tell you something, it's amazing that it's so bad that even Beck's website is like, no, that's, that's totally edited. But do you think it's part of the whole machinery of going after places like NPR? Well, there's no question about it. People are, uh, they have an agenda, uh, it's aggressive, and in fact, the proposal that we're voting on tomorrow goes beyond just defunding NPR. It would cripple public broadcasting stations around the country, particularly in rural or small-town America, and prohibit them from purchasing content from any source, like Prairie Home Companion, uh, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, uh, or uh, programming from uh, other public broadcasting stations. Uh, it's just really uh, unbelievable that right. they would do this to try and shut the system down. All right, and, and I want to be clear, the Blaze is not part of Fox News. So I just wanted to clarify that based on right. what I said earlier. Congressman, real right. quick, last question for you. Uh, do you think the Senate or the White House will eventually stop this, or is there any chance that NPR actually gets defunded? I think there's very likely to be a strong pushback. The overwhelming majority of the American public support keeping the funding as it is or even increasing it. In fact, two-thirds of Republicans support keeping funding or increasing it. Uh, I think that they may have bitten off more than they can chew. I certainly hope the Senate and the White House pushes back. The American public deserves it, and I think this is a case where these people have just reached too far. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able. As anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. You know what? At least liberals will always have NPR to raise their spirits. A video released by conservative political activist James O'Keefe today showed the top fundraising executive for National Public Radio criticizing Republicans and calling the Tea Party racist. Oh, son of a... Liberals got O'Keefe again! <laughs> Taken in by the Ashton Kutcher of the conservative movement. James O'Keefe best known for his hidden camera takedowns and for, of course, the least plausible pimp costume ever. Why would a pimp wear ski goggles? Well, how bad could the NPR fundraising executive Ron Schiller have been? 
the current Republican Party, but particularly the Tea Party, is fanatically involved in people's personal lives and very fundamental Christian, not just Islamophobic, but really, I mean, basically, they are, they are, they believe in sort of white, middle America, gun-toting, I mean, it's pretty scary. They're, they're seriously Anyway, who wants lunch? <laughs> the worst part is the faux Muslim representatives Schiller believed he was talking to were also dressed like pimps. Um, <laughs> liberals trust pimps, what can you say? But wow, that guy couldn't be more of a right-wing caricature of an NPR executive if he had spent five minutes discovering the pleasures of Madeira wine. <laughs> Just discovered Madeira. Madeira? Madeira. Have you had Madeira? I've that I have. I never had had it, so I've had lots of different wines. And of course, I've tried sherry, I've tried port. I probably had some Madeira at some point. Certainly, I've had things cooked with Madeira, and it's, that's wonderful. By the way, true, that goes on for five minutes. And by the way, is it really the best strategy to spend? Five minutes talking to Muslims about the pleasures of alcohol. <laughs> but enough about Madeira. Let me show you my prize-winning bacon and porn collection. <laughs> now obviously in a case like this, the erection at Fox News headquarters can most likely be seen from outer space. <laughs> so you can imagine NPR would mount a vigorous defense of themselves, perhaps acknowledge some bias on the part of some of their employees, but while still touting the difference between a news organization influenced by bias and a bias organization relentlessly promoting an ideological partisan agenda under the rubric of being a news organization, a point that could easily be made by comparing, let's say, any randomly chosen 24-hour broadcast period of the two organizations. Hint, the less agenda-driven organization is the one that spends more time on the migration habits of monarch butterflies. <laughs> Let's see how NPR decides to play it. Schiller apologized and resigned almost immediately after that tape came to light. The CEO of NPR, we are now learning, has resigned. Pussies! <clears throat> I'm sorry, I got the word pussies caught in my throat. Well, I guess he could go that way. Come on, at least, at least, fight. Well, let's give NPR credit. They did themselves cover this somewhat embarrassing story. What if lunch were caught on a hidden camera? Amy Goldberg has this report. Afternoon in Georgetown. A bitter winter is slowly losing its sting. But inside the Cafe Milano, the sting was just beginning. The prosciutto di Parma here is sliced thin, as chef Fabio Salvatore's Milanese grandmother Fabio, taught him. Bellissimo. But for NPR executive Ron Schiller, the menu had just one item. Humiliation. Una video camera? No, I would never have guessed they had such a thing. Miguel Ramos is a busboy at the cafe, originally trained as a medical technician in Nicaragua. But there was nothing <laughs> Wow. That almost seems completely fake. <laughs> All right, that's not fair. We should, we should really listen to how NPR actually covered the story. 
The top fundraiser for NPR, who had already announced that he was leaving NPR for another job, officially resigned last night. NPR's Larry Abramson reports. Ron Schiller was head of NPR fundraising until yesterday. We'll be right. NPR is uh, in new trouble because of the James O'Keefe sting video where they had a senior vice president uh, talking about how, you know, the Tea Party people are racist, etc., etc. So they got him and he resigned and then the head of NPR resigned. Apparently they tried to sting on PBS as well. By the way, the end result of the sting was, as always, a total failure. Both NPR and PBS turned down $5 million dollars uh, with no strings attached because they didn't trust the guys that were giving them the money, which to me is an amazing story about restraint because not a lot of people would turn down $5 million with no strings attached. But Juan Williams took this as an opportunity to take a, another shot at NPR, his former employer. He's still incredibly bitter over being fired, so he's going to vent. Let's watch. I think when it comes to NPR's decision to you know, without any reason, you know, throw me out the door. I think that, I think for them, I think especially for some of the people who created NPR, it's an all-white operation. I think that they felt uh, they had never had much success with people who were black journalists, Hispanic journalists, um, more success with white women. Um, but what you see is there a real reluctance, I think, to I mean, despite 10 years of success, a real reluctance to deal with me as a journalist um, and to say, you know what, the audience thinks great things about this guy. They would send me out and I would help them raise tons of money, millions of dollars. Uh, you know, one of the most requested personalities in terms of fundraising and, you know, announcements and all the like. Uh, tremendous response. Uh, their own ombudsman says she got more mail about me than any other journalist there. But for them, and I think uh, the fact that I was a journalist who was not being pigeonholed as just a black journalist, but something larger, and sometimes even conservative in a point of view, not predictable in that way, um, made them have great difficulty with me, just, just not know what to do. And uh, as a result, I think they acted very unfairly and largely in a condescending manner. I think if you stop and think about some of the things that were said uh, in the midst of that controversy, you know, the idea that I should have a relationship with a psychiatrist or I need a publicist to tell me what to say, it just suggests, uh, you know, it's very sad for me to, to think, that, but I mean, it just, just suggests to my mind that they think that I was sort of some kind of infantile mentality or, you know, childlike person, you know, the way that I think the worst of white condescension to black people was evident in some of those comments. Yeah. Nonsense. Uh, first of all, bitter man. He's still stinging over them letting him go. And look, if he's, 
you know, angry about that. I get it. I am not hating on him for that. But this whole stuff about they didn't know how to handle a black journalist, <laughs> trying to bring racism into this thing. What, like NPR was like, oh, my God, it is a black journalist. What do we do? I don't know how to handle it. Get out of here. Look, come on. You're obviously misleading your audience as you usually do on Fox News. Uh, the reason that they had a problem with you, and this is a fair complaint on your part if you went in this direction, is because you're conservative. Or you, even if you, worse yet, you're a conservative pretending to be a liberal. And you would go on Fox News and they would flash NPR, NPR, NPR. And then you would go and go, oh, Bill O'Reilly, you are so right. Everything you say is right. Can I object a little bit? No, I can't. All right. That's fair enough. And they're flashing NPR the whole time. That's their real complaint about you, that you represented NPR's people who, you know, bow their heads and agree with everything Fox News says. It had nothing to do with race, and you know it. Look, those comments about the psychologists and the publicists, that's what they say every time. They don't just say to black people. They, I don't mean NPR. I mean in the media. Charlie Sheen, I know Charlie Sheen's crazy, right? But anytime there's any kind of controversy, they say, oh, his publicist or some uh, should have gotten him under control. That's something he should have told the psychologist, not to the whole world. For Juan Williams to bring race into this, look, the bottom line of it is is that it's bullshit. It's, it's not about race. And him all of a sudden trying to feel like, uh, trying to say like, that the reason they fired him is not because of his political views, but because of his race. I, I think it's. I think he knows it's bullshit, and that's why it bothered me that he went with this line of attack. I love how he was tooting his own horn throughout that entire interview. Like, oh, I was so great. I raised so much money. Everyone loved me, and then they fired me. Like, ah, oh, come on, come on. As soon as NPR fired him, uh, they gave him, uh, I believe, a two million dollar contract. Fox News did. Uh, of course. To say like, oh, you see that. NPR fired the black man, and we hired him for $2 million. Aren't we so great? Aren't we so liberal and fair and balanced? Sometimes we even hire black people, as long as they're willing to say we're right. Yeah, and it's interesting how he was talking about how NPR pigeonhole, uh, pigeonholed him as the black journalist or something. What do you think Fox News is doing? You know? <laughs> That's a great point, Anna, because Fox News is putting him up as like, here's a black man who agrees with us. We win. Exactly. That's your whole point on Fox News, Juan. I hate to break the bad news to you. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Jess Levin. Glenn Beck is no stranger to Nazi comparisons, but today he tried to rewrite the rules. I haven't compared uh, progressives to Nazis. I have compared their tactics and what they do. Nice try, Glenn. While there are Nazis and communists, you're leaving out the one word that gives it all context. Progressive. Progressive. Because progressives know what's at the end of the progressive road. Whether it's Nazis or communists, someone has to control your life. We are really, truly stepping beyond uh, socialism, and, I, and we're starting to look at fascism. For these stories and more, visit MediaMatters.org. You're out of your mind. Are you comparing the systematic, cold-blooded extermination of millions of Jews to America making sure that people are here legally?
is the Onion News Network. Report first, ask questions later. top political story today, President Obama cannot seem to shake the mounting rumors that he does not love his dog, Bo. It started three weeks ago on right-wing message boards, speculating as to why President Obama was so rarely photographed with the Portuguese water dog given to the first family in 2009. The issue has quickly become a favorite talking point on conservative radio programs like The Wendell Mack Show. I've never seen him feed Bo. I've never seen him take Bo to the vet. My friends, if this man hates his own dog so much, that he refuses to play fetch with him in public. Think of how much he must hate the American people. For some deep insight on this controversy in record time, let's take this over to the first responders, the fastest opinion generators on television. Okay, responders, tell us what the Obama team should be doing differently here. Love that dog, for God's sake. Look, if the White House would just come out and prove that Obama cares a little bit for Bo, this whole issue would be settled. Absolutely. But the and fact look, that they're know, refusing I, to even try speaks volumes. Yeah, this, it's the people's right to ask questions, and the big question here is, okay, if Obama doesn't hate his dog, then why do so many people think that he does? Well, the administration is trying to change the public's opinion about this. I mean, just yesterday, the president launched a new website trying to display his love for Bo. It's called First Dog, and it shows over 1,000 photographs of President Obama with Bo in various situations. Earlier today, White House Deputy Press Secretary Todd Grant made a public statement about the matter. Of course the president loves Bo. Very much. He uh, scratches behind his ears. He rubs his belly. Uh, he calls him a good boy multiple times per day. Oh, please! Yeah, uh, just they resign, came out. The dog hater. You know, Nancy's right. I mean, this is about honesty. Resigning for trying to deceive the American people mm. about loving Bo is is the only honorable uh, course of action for Obama. Well, the author of the national bestseller, Refusal to Play, analyzed six months worth of the president's speeches and found that he only mentioned Bo fourteen times. They also called over seven hundred interviews with White House officials, and not once did President Obama say that he didn't want Bo dead. Oh, Not once. Uh, you can see in his eyes, he can't stand that dog. And you know, I gotta say, it's all become all the more obvious seeing how much Joe Biden clearly loves his boa constrictor, uh, Mr. Robes. Yeah. All right, thank you so much, first responders. Don't forget to take your trash on the way out. You know, the story kind of makes me miss my corgis. If you're watching, Carter, Cameron, Jackson, Juju, and Jerome, I'll be home soon. So Republicans want to defund NPR. First of all, do we have any business using tax dollars to fund public television or public radio? Um, that's a tough one, isn't it? That's a tough one. Yeah, I don't well, know either. I think, yeah, I think you should fund like information that's nonpartisan, but unfortunately, the truth looks very democratic. Right, NPR. I would. I think we would argue is nonpartisan. It's just that the truth right now look is a great way to put it. The truth looks like the truth looks like it comes from the left. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, NPR. Before you know, my father ran NPR from 1977 to 1982, and 
the uh, one of their former employees, I guess their first employee, a guy named Jack Mitchell, believes that my father did not leave NPR in perfect financial uh, condition because he mm -hmm. made a serious effort to stop the reliance on public funding. Um, and then after he left, I think in 82 or 83, this guy Jack Mitchell says that that the whole mentality of the place had shifted from this sort of do alternative stories that nobody else did to doing what everybody else did, but doing it better, mm -hmm. which I think they have achieved. Uh, so that has changed. Does that mean if they're just doing what ABC News does and CBS News, Washington Post, New York Times, that they shouldn't get public funding just because they do it so How damn much well? Public funding do they get? What's, what's the percentage of their? The percentage budget? is about five percent overall, but in some it can go up to thirty percent locally, and in some small communities, uh, there is it, it can be thirty to fifty percent of their funding. I say working around the country on the wind stuff for the last couple of years, I got to listen to a lot of different NPR stations. I think NPR is a lot better in the small parts of the country. Right. So they, so and, I, they and if they need it, they, they need no question. It. They need they need the you know, you you look you're in a small Colorado town, a small Kansas town, parts of California. What you how, you raising that money on your own? No, you can't. It's not of course possible. not. Right. So they use a lot of the funding. So it so when we see those numbers that hey it's only five percent, that's misleading. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, my dad was on on the media their sort of weekly show about the press with uh, uh, Brooke Gladstone, and. Uh, so she's talking. He's talking to Brooke Gladstone. She does an interview with him, and he starts by saying, "You know, she's like what NPR's president from '77 to '83." And he talks about decoupling television, public television, from public radio, leave NPR on its own. He thinks mm -hmm. NPR can sustain itself on its own. Public TV certainly needs the public funding, um, and he tried to reduce the NPR share of the budget. So that's his point. But then she comes back to end her piece about sort of NPR, this 12-minute piece that they, these guys do. And uh, my dad gives an all-time great response, and NPR uh, remarkably did not uh, edit this. <laughs> God bless them for it. Your confident news organization, not according to Frank Mankiewicz. I don't think that this event should have been responsible for her firing. I think she was a very competent executive and was taking NPR in the right direction. John Stewart called NPR's board a bunch of pussies. A bunch of what? Pussies. Cookies? Pussies. Oh, pussies. Yeah, that may be true. <laughs> that is a vintage, uh, my father. Every conversation my brother and I have with him, I presume everybody has with him. You're, <laughs> you say one thing, he doesn't understand. Cookies. He says the wrong thing, and you yell the thing you meant. It's just not usually, pussies, pussies, cock, cock, lock, cock, cock. And apparently NPR would have left that on, too. Uh, so anyway, God bless my father for calling, uh, calling the board at NPR pussies. God bless him. Hi, Jay. This is Shane from Chicago. Um, last time I called, I called about asking you about Keith Oberman and his situation, and then I pick up my iPod two hours later, and voila, there's a great show, one that I keep in my archives. I think that uh, your comment about Keith being uh, sometimes cringeworthy, another listener said he began, to, he, he began to, to become acidic, and my son says he was always over the top. 
Well, I think that uh, he was necessary as our uh, political spectrum swings from right to left. He was our antithesis to Rush in this crowd, and that it was important for him to be there, and by losing him, we sort of all incrementally moved a little bit to the right. And uh, I thought that it was important for have a guy like him around who could call the right and the left down to the principal's office for good scolding, which they needed, and which we needed to hear. And it makes, uh, makes us feel better to hear our voice and our opinions be, being expressed such a way. Anyway, keep up the good work. You did a great job. I'm so glad I became a member. Keep, keep up the good work. Bye. Hi, Jay. It's Michael from Glenbury. Just finished listening to your latest episode and wanted to chime in about Mumia Abdul-Jamal. I understand what you're saying. I, I agree with you that everybody, you know, that a good opinion is worth listening to no matter where it comes from. And one of my philosophies has always been that everybody, anybody can learn something from anyone. Uh, you know, there, there's no one that has a monopoly on good wisdom or good opinions. Um, and even a crazy person can make sense sometimes. Uh, but, uh, it's, I think there's an aspect to this that you're missing. I, I think when you're putting his words on and his voice out there, uh, you're doing more than just sharing his opinion. You're also, uh, essentially endorsing him. Uh, you may not mean it that way, but that's how, that's how it can come across is that you're, you're saying, here's a guy worth listening to. Here is a man who, uh, you know, should be respected and and we should listen to his opinion. And like I said, he might not mean that, but I think that's implied. Uh, and, you know, while you say that you would have other people on, you know, who you would disagree with on a majority of issues like Glenn Beck, but they had a good opinion, you'd have them on. Um, you know, I, I just don't want, one, I don't, I can't recall the last time you've ever done that. Uh, but two, you know, I just wonder if the Arizona shooter, the Air, you know, if the Arizona shooter comes out and, uh, and, you know, he starts, uh, recording his opinions from prison and he makes some sense or makes liberal points. I mean, would you have him on the show? Uh, would you, you know, play his messages? And I just don't know. I mean, I, I would think probably not, but at any rate, those are my two cents. Just want to chime in. Thanks anyway for all you do and, uh, keep up the good work. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or an activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. Today, I just want to, uh, you know, kind of finish up, hopefully, this discussion on uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal that was brought up by a voicemail in, I think, just the pre- most recent episode of the show. And, he, you know, his was not the only comment I'd received about this. So it didn't just come out of the blue and I thought, hey, let's blow this up into a giant conversation because one person mentioned it. You know, a couple of people had mentioned it uh, by email and and those who had are very passionate about it. And, you know, like when people are really, really passionate about something, I think, OK, let's hear them out. So um, and I and I, I love these things when when really valid criticisms or, you know, really passionate criticisms, something that's not just, you know, a throwaway line that I can easily ignore. Uh, comes up. I love talking about them, you know, being challenged on them. You know, I know, I know what I think and I already act based on, on what I think is right, but I love, I love to be challenged because one of two things is going to happen. Either, uh, I will remain steadfast in my thoughts and not be swayed, in which case I'll just be that much more confident in my position or 
I, I will change my mind, in which case I want for that to happen. You know, that's just my two-step patented process to always being right put into put into action, you know. Uh, step one, as I've said before, and I'm sure I'll say again, be right whenever you can, just be right. But step two is if you do find yourself to be in a situation where you're wrong, well, then change your mind, and then you can be right again. It's genius. So, um, so I, I asked this question on the show. I asked for voicemail responses. Um, I got a couple, not many. You know, unfortunately, I only had time for one today. But, um, you know, the, the one voicemail came in, a couple of emails came in, and uh, a lot of people posted on Facebook. I also opened up the discussion uh, to be had there. And so, you know, it's a not a huge sample size, but, you know, 70, 75 people uh, chimed in. And, and so I have a decent idea of, of what people think about it. First, uh, congratulations to Michael from Glen Burnie, who actually you all heard from in the voicemail that he just left today, as, for having maybe the most thought-provoking comments on the subject. And uh, so that was exciting. Um, so, so to re- respond to him, I... I, I thought I thought both of his comments, the most salient ones being that um, by by playing someone on the show, I'm kind of de facto endorsing them, and and then the other was to draw a comparison to the uh, the Arizona shooter. If he were to start making uh, liberal commentaries, I probably wouldn't use those. And I I think I think they're interesting thought experiments. But I don't quite buy into the premise of them. Uh, you know, as, as he said, that I would probably deny that I endorse people by using them on the show. But it's kind. But I kind of am, anyways, even if I mean to. And I think that that's an unreasonable standard to set. Uh, so basically, yes, I would deny that I would be endorsing anyone just just for using them on the show, because you know I, I'm endorsing what they're saying. I'm endorsing their ideas. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe I'm not, maybe I include people who are, you know, contrary to my ideas, but interesting nonetheless. But, um, but yeah, I, I think it's an unreasonable standard to set to say that anyone who gets played on the show or, you know, featured in the way that Abu Jamal is featured on the show, that that means that I endorse them as a person or I endorse all their past actions or, or, you know, whatever it is. So, uh, yeah, so I would deny that. And then, and then the comment about the Arizona shooter, I think, is along the same lines as, you know, the other commenter who said, well, you wouldn't use Glenn Beck even if he was speaking rationally. And another one, you know, escalated that same line of thought in an email or, or on Facebook or something saying, uh, well, you know, you wouldn't use Osama bin Laden if he started saying really reasonable things. And I thought, I, I you know, when when I'm when I'm standing here on on principle and I'm saying that it's what they're saying that matters and not who they are. It makes it really easy to answer those questions and be like, uh, yeah, I think I would. You know, um, if if uh, bin Laden came out and started talking about how uh, terrorism was the wrong way to go because uh, you know nonviolent peaceful resistance has uh, you know brought about the the right sorts of changes that movements have, have wanted throughout time. And that, uh, you know, secular democracy is better than religious fundamentalism. I'd play that, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to play what he says now because he doesn't, uh, you know, jive with with what I think. But um, but yeah, those I think those are really easy comments to 
be dismissive of because I feel like I'm standing on, uh, you know, a, a foundation of principled logic rather than emotion. So speaking of emotion, to get to the uh, the, the Facebook debate that was being had, um, it, it was an incredibly lopsided, first of all, it, you know, out of, you know, 75 people chiming in, uh, just a handful, five people maybe were, uh, were, in, were, were saying to, uh, to kick him off the show that it was unacceptable that he be included in the show and it made them sick. It made them want to puke. They'd, they'd stop listening to best of the left entirely if they felt like I was being supportive of a murderer and, you know, on and on. Everyone else was like, yeah, you know, ideas rule. You ideas stand on their own. It doesn't matter who they come from. That was the basic consensus. So, so speaking of emotion, um, the, a very strong thread I found in all of the comments from the people, the, the few, the, the few dissenters is that they were very, very emotional comments and they didn't seem to be founded on, you know, a, a sturdy set of logic. So their, their arguments were, I mean, very, very unpersuasive. It, essentially it was just a, come on, it makes me sick to my stomach. Come on. Doesn't, you know, you, you can't do this. And, um, and I, I was like, well, we disagree. <laughs> we, and it, it's not, it's not that I disagree that someone killing a cop, it would, you know, makes you sick. What I'm saying is that's not part of this discussion for me. Uh, and so, so what this reminded me of very starkly was, uh, something that's famous in, in recent, uh, American political history. And, you know, I was five years old when it happened, but, uh, but I'm still very aware of this and when it happened back in 1988. The first question goes to Governor Dukakis. You have two minutes to respond. Governor, if Kitty Dukakis were raped and murdered, would you favor an irrevocable death penalty for the killer? So there you go. That, that happened back in, uh, as I said, 1988 in the presidential uh, debate between Dukakis and Bush. And, you know, so Dukakis is, is well known for his anti-death penalty stance. And in this really famous question, he's basically emotionally baited into throwing away all of his principles on his political position in favor of an emotional response to if something horrible happened to your uh, spouse, then wouldn't you want to throw away all your principles? You know, it's that idea is repulsive to me uh, that that it was asked in that way. And that, you know, like I said, I was five years old when it happened. I didn't, I don't know what the media was like. As I've heard it reported uh, in more recent years, it's generally thought of that he didn't answer the question all that well, or he was thought of poorly because he stuck to his principles. And he said, no, I wouldn't favor the death penalty for someone who raped and killed my wife. And so then the, the whole country, oh, how could he, how could he not have a thirst for blood vengeance it, when his spouse was, you know, brutally uh, raped and murdered, you know, and it's like, that's so wrongheaded uh, of a way to think about it. And please, you know, don't get confused that I'm I'm trying to equate his death penalty stance with uh, Abu Jamal being on death row. It's that is not the comparison I'm making at all. It is simply the emotional reaction that people are having that basically those those who have said it's you know they practically insist that I that I take him out of the show. Uh, otherwise they won't listen to the show anymore. They're so appalled by it that, that their reactions are so visceral and emotional that, you know, and, and they want other people to 
react emotionally as well. And I'm saying that that's just not what intellectual debate is about. It's not about, uh, you know, bending to our emotions, no matter how visceral, you know, it's about, uh, letting all of the best arguments be heard no matter where they come from. And if you're one of those people who says you're going to stop listening to the show, if you know that this guy is being promoted, then I'm sorry to see you go. I, I just ask that you kind of recognize, uh, or, or at least think about it yourself, uh, uh, you know, my perspective on why you feel that way. And, and I think it really has a lot more to do with an emotional reaction being, you know, at odds with, I think what should logically be true. So now I'm going to get out of here right after I think a couple of members, Pamela C signed up for a socialist monthly membership back on December 11th and has stuck with the show since then. And Douglas U signed up for a leftist membership paid for a full year in advance back on September 18th. So huge thanks to Pamela and Douglas and all the members and donors who make the show possible. I obviously couldn't do it without you guys. So thank you very, very much. Please stay connected to the show by joining us on Facebook and Twitter. Get details about the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode. All of that information is always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 11 times a month. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. It's now black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to be A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor